0: and we are almost through the seven churches. And after that, it actually goes pretty quick. And so if any of you are like, man, we're only on church number six, it's okay. We're going to go through all seven, and then it goes really fast from then on. I want to start this morning by asking a question, though. And the question kind of is, is arrogant a little bit because it assumes that you're afraid of something. So don't be offended by this question, but, but really use this question as an introspective question. The question is, what would you do if you weren't afraid? What would you do if you weren't afraid? Now, all of us have fear on some level, right? So it's almost impossible for us not to be afraid all the time. I mean, there's always somewhat of a little bit of fear going on in our lives, whether it's about uncertainty in our jobs or whether it's about relationships or whether it's about, um, you know, just simply living in, As Pastor Paul was saying, just simply living in an election year, you know, that could be a fearful thing because that's what elections sell, right? I mean, that's what campaigns sell. They sell fear. Vote for us. We'll make you safe. Vote for us. don't, Don't be afraid. But really, the question for Christians should be a ridiculous question. What would you do if you weren't afraid? This should be so ridiculous. But like I said, we live in an economy of fear. If you watch TV for too long, if you watch the 24-hour news cycle for too long, you're going to be afraid about something. You're going to be afraid of something. Some of us are afraid that one person might get elected. Some of us are afraid that, that, that well, I don't know. Some of us are just afraid that some people might get elected that we don't want to get elected. I hear the chuckling. Some of us might be afraid that the only choice that we have in elections is the choice between the lesser of two evils. (laughs) My point is that there's fear everywhere. There's fear everywhere, And, and we're left to sort out what are we less afraid of. Now, if you believe in Jesus, and if you follow Jesus, and if you've put your confidence and your trust in Jesus, then there's nothing earthly to be afraid of. Fear is almost ridiculous to think about. But like I said, I understand when you live in an economy of fear, sometimes it's impossible not to be afraid. (coughs) Excuse me. So what would you do if you weren't afraid? Today as we dive into the church of Philadelphia, this is a church that was not afraid. This is a church that lived in the reality of a very deep confidence in Jesus, and they were praised in a huge way. So if you have your Bibles, and we have Bibles for you, I, I always forget about Josh. Josh, our lovely assistant over here, has Bibles. If any of you need a Bible, raise your hand. Josh will bring it to you. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 this morning. And um, just like we did last week, I'm actually going to start by reading all the way through this little passage that we're dealing with this morning. So Revelation 3, 7. It starts by saying this, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet, acknowledge and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come to the whole earth and test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down from heaven from my God. And I will also write them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. Or says to the churches. So I'm going to start by talking about Philadelphia for a second. And the reason why we started talking about fear is because Philadelphia is a city characterized by, by fear. Not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, by the way. Pennsylvania wasn't around yet. Well, it was around, but no one called it Pennsylvania. I think it was called like the Iroquois Nation or something like that. So Philadelphia was a very new city by the time that this letter was being written. There were some of the same issues that we saw in other towns. There were Jewish synagogues that expelled Christians we have to remember the Christian church spread through synagogues. That's how the Christian church grew because it was essentially the Jewish Messiah had come. And so Jews who had accepted Jesus as Messiah ended up going around to these different synagogues and preaching this message. The Messiah is here, the long-awaited one, the one who's in the line of David. He has come. And they would be expelled for believing this and kicked out of town. And the doors would be shut in their face and that's why Jesus was calling them a synagogue of Satan, because in the synagogues, there was protection from persecution. And what they did was they shut out Christians, the people who started believing in Jesus, and they would be persecuted and they would die. And so that's why Jesus called them a synagogue of Satan. It's not because Jesus himself, a Jew, was anti-Semitic or anything like that. He was um, essentially saying, you were doing the work of the empire, therefore he's comparing them to Satan. There was the same temptations as many other towns. There was temple worship, there was eating food sacrificed to idols. All the other towns that we've dealt with in this series, this church faced. All the other sins, all the other issues, everything, this church dealt with all the same exact stuff. But Philadelphia was a little different. We've talked about other towns, and they've had these chief... um, chief uh, imports and exports and things like that, Philadelphia was different. Philadelphia was a missionary town. Philadelphia existed to export what was called Hellenism. So they considered themselves missionaries to the rest of the world to teach the Greek language, to teach the Roman gods, to teach the, the Roman system, to put people through citizenship classes, to help people become fully Roman or Hellenized. This was a missionary town in which the church lived in. Philadelphia sent teachers, poets, philosophers to the rest of the world to teach this Greek system. But mainly this city was characterized by fear. Like I said, this was a fairly new town by the time this letter was being written. And it was fairly new because it kept being destroyed. It was built on a very seismically active area. And it would continually, there would be earthquakes and the town would be destroyed. It was near a volcano and hot springs. And there was always these earthquakes. So just like we saw in Haiti a few years back, where people would leave their towns and they'd go sleep in tents because their construction was so bad. And, and whenever there was an aftershock, um, buildings would fall down. You know, the, they didn't really have great building codes in Philadelphia in the first century AD. This same exact thing would happen. Essentially, there were rocks stacked up to build these homes somewhat of a mud mortar, but a good enough size earthquake come along and all those rocks come crumbling in on you and you would die. And so at nighttime, the citizens of Philadelphia would build their little tents and they would go outside the city gates and they would sleep so that they, there wouldn't be an earthquake in the middle of the night and they would die. It's a city that was characterized by this fear. They lived in constant fear that an earthquake would happen. They lived in constant fear that um, somebody would end up dying because of these rocks caving in. So they, to show that, they slept outside. Philadelphia was given the name Neo-Caesarea, which was a political tio- title. And they recognized Caesar Tiberius as the savior of all of Philadelphia because the last earthquake they faced, he said, I'm going to withhold taxes so that you can rebuild. And so they built a temple in his honor. So like I said, the, this, this city is very tied into the political system of Rome. They had to worship Caesar. They dealt with persecution, emperor worship, all the same exact things that all the other churches dealt with. But see, this church wasn't, it was, when you look at the, the, letters, the rest of the letters of Revelation, Jesus had something against them. Jesus said, hey, you have tolerate this person Jezebel, or hey, you've gone too much into the system of Rome, or hey, you know, I, I've got these things against you. But Jesus never said any of this to Philadelphia. In fact, he praised them for their good work. I know your works, and, and they're good. I mean, he, there, there's only two towns of all the seven churches that Jesus prays, and these are towns that get persecuted, and this town overcame fear and took opportunities. Their first fill-in is, this is a church that overcame the spirit of fear. This is a church that overcame the spirit of fear. The church in Philadelphia's faith was greater than their fear. Like I said earlier, it's not like our fears will ever be diminished, or will ever fully go away sometimes until we go to heaven, right? We're always going to live with this like, little anxiety or fear that we get every now and then. And, 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 you know, people say, oh, I follow Jesus, so I've got nothing to be afraid of. It's like, have you ever seen a mountain lion in the wild? I have. It's scary. Have you ever accidentally run into a bear? I have. Mountain biking, it was scary. I, had, I felt fear. We're always going to feel fear in our lives. We're always going to have that. But this is a matter of the church saying our faith is greater than our fear. Our faith in Jesus is outlasts, outgrows, is way bigger than the fears that we have in life. The next film. this is a church that obstacles became opportunities. And I'm going to talk about all this in a second. Obstacles became opportunities. See, Jesus saw how great this church was at overcoming fear. He saw how great it was, and here's what I mean by that. So Jesus says in this letter, I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. This is the open door of opportunity. The open door of opportunity because they have overcome their fear. In other words, they're not worried about persecution. They're not necessarily worried about these earthquakes. They're not necessarily worried about any of this stuff. Therefore, the people in the town, it would be reported, and in commentaries talk about this, they would come up to them and say, why aren't you afraid? Why aren't you afraid of these earthquakes? Why aren't you afraid of persecution? Why aren't you afraid of any of this stuff? It's because they followed Jesus. This idea of, I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. This was code that Jesus was talking to the church. It comes way out of the book of Isaiah, chapter 22. And it says, in that day, I will summon my servant Elakim, son of, H- 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 I don't know, some... I'm terrible at this. I've been to seminary, po- poor Pastor Larry Orr over here, he, kn- he could pronounce that in half a second. Well, I will clothe him with the robe you fasten around your sash, and around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judea. I will place on his shoulder the keys of the house of David. Which he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. So what is this verse saying? This is Jesus talking in code. They would have had the book of Isaiah. They would have understood what Jesus was trying to say. The keys of the house of David is Old Testament code for saying kingdom of God. And so what Jesus is saying to this church is, listen, I am giving you the kingdom of God. The door is open to you. You've overcome And the door is open to you into the kingdom of God. You've overcome fear. You're using, you've taken these obstacles and turned them into opportunities. Remember, the believers living in Philadelphia would have had Old Testament texts. They would have gotten this obscure reference, even though some of us today don't understand it. But what Jesus is saying is the door is open to you. Many who would have come into Philadelphia, would have come to faith in Philadelphia, would have had the doors of the synagogue slammed in their face. So when Jesus says, A standing before you is an open door, he's saying, you have endured for my name. You have stood firm for me, and therefore my door is always open to you. They would have understood that Jesus held the keys to the kingdom and to new life. So the church in Philadelphia had two big opportunities that they took. One, they had the opportunity, this open door, I'm sorry. The open door sort of shed light on these two big opportunities. The first opportunity was to share the love of Jesus with others in the town. Opportunity to share about Jesus with others. The townspeople, like I said before, would have wanted to know, why aren't you afraid of the people in the synagogue? Why aren't you afraid of the government? Why aren't you afraid of these earthquakes? What is wrong with you? And the answer simply would have been, our confidence is in Jesus. We found our life in him. So they would have had this great opportunity to share about Jesus with others. You know, when you're in a crowd of people and everybody kind of acts the same, everybody sort of has the same thoughts and somebody stands out that's a little bit different, you want to know what is going on with that person. And that would have been the Christians in this town. And two, this was an open door to the world. Like I said, the the town of Philadelphia was already an outward-bound town. It was already a town that was going out sharing their gods, sharing their ideologies, sharing what they believed with the rest of the world. See, this was a great opportunity, and and the church eventually did this. They ended up infiltrating that system and sharing the good news with people whose jobs it was to go around the world and, and share about Greek and Roman Hellenism. And so the church here said, wow, our entire city is going around the world. What an opportunity to spread the gospel. Our entire town is outward focused. What a huge opportunity for us to share the gospel. It's almost like, like Paul. We, we read in Paul's letters that he was a tent maker. Why would you be a, a tent maker in first century Rome? It's not necessarily like some people think just to make some extra cash. Who needed tents at the time? It was military personnel, and it was merchants. Paul took, took this skill of making tents, and he did it so that he could reach missionaries and merchants, people who would go around the world. He recognized that he couldn't spread the entire gospel by himself, so he took this opportunity to spread the gospel around the world. I mean, how much more of an open door do we have today with FaceTime? I mean, we... Can any of you ever fathom, like, when just even a few years ago, that you could pick up your cell phone and see somebody from around the world and just talk to them? Like, could we ever fathom that? Sorry, not you, Dennis. You can't do that. Um, the, you don't do that. You can't do that with flip phones. It's not your fault. You're smarter than the rest of us. Your bill is probably way cheaper than all of ours. But who would have ever fathomed that we could Skype this? Next week, I'm going to South Carolina to speak at a, all online spiritual formation conference. I mean, we used to pay thousands of dollars and hundreds of dollars to fly somewhere go to do do these conferences and all that stuff, and everybody would attend and have to do hotels and flights, but now we're doing a conference entirely online. I mean, our technology has so changed our world landscape. What if we use that as an open door to share Jesus with other people? What open doors do you have in your life to share about Jesus? What's interesting in this letter about Philadelphia is that there's not a word of criticism toward them, toward the church. Like all the other churches, they had some sort of criticism, but not Philadelphia. And I think it's because they were willing to walk through the doors that God was opening. What doors has God opened in your life? What opportunities has God placed right in front of you? Here's what happens. Sometimes a door of opportunity will open right in front of us. It'll pop up, and us with our sinful, judgmental nature will start to judge the door, right? Like an opportunity will come up and we'll go, well, I'm not sure that God wants us to do that. Or somebody will come up, and, and we know we should share with them our faith, and we're like, yeah, well, you know, they're not ready yet. We judge for them. We tend to judge the doors of opportunity that are right in front of us. We tend to talk we tend to think, well, I I don't know, maybe this will be good, maybe it won't. And, but who are we to judge the door? Right? If God is opening a door for us. Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a coworker. Who are we to judge that door? If God is opening that door, then who are we to question that? We ought to walk right through that. Most of you know cuz I talked about it a lot that I I like my my spare time has kind of been um, burning energy by going to skate parks and trying not to fall and get hurt and kind of trying to stay young. Yesterday I was, I was at my normal spot, Doherty, about 9 o'clock in the morning and I ended up talking with this other skateboarder guy. And we're just talking and sharing about what we do and he asked me what I did and I told him I'm a pastor. I've seen him there a thousand times before. We talk all the time but he never knew what I did. And so I told him I'm a pastor. And we get to talking and talking and he said, well how did you get into that? And i I, now I tell him skateboarding got me into it because you remember this church had a skate park and that's what I originally was hired for. The skateboarding got me into being a pastor. So, all of you. And, and so I, I started sharing with him and I ended up sharing my faith with him for an hour, just sitting there chatting with the guy. Do they, when these little doors of opportunity come up, do you take them? Do you take that opportunity? See, if you're praying, God, use me, if you're praying for the harvest, if you're praying for all this stuff, the idea is God was going to open a door right next to you. So do you judge that door or do you walk through it? Do we say, oh, that's not a good, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's a good idea right now. Or do you walk right through it? Does our fear stop us? I think sometimes it does. I think sometimes we're like, well, how, how, what are people going to perceive of me? Are people going to think about me if I say I follow Jesus? What's that going to look like? And that that stops us from walking through the door that God has laid out directly in front of us. Sometimes we have these opportunities in our lives and we say, I don't know. I'm just kind of weak. I don't have a whole lot of strength. This is what Jesus said to the Philadelphia church. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. I love that. I know that you have little strength. Jesus isn't saying, hey, listen, I know you're weak, or I know your excuses, or anything like that. But he's saying, I know that you as people have little strength. You've endured a lot. You've, <laughs> what you've gone through is rough, and I get it. I love this verse out of 2 Corinthians 12.9. It says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Why? What, is it, what does that mean? It's that critical moment when you say, Lord, I, I just don't have the strength. I don't have the power to do this anymore. It's that critical moment when you say, I, I've just got to stop forcing it. It's that critical moment when you say, okay, God, I'm at the end of my rope. Not my will, but your will. See, God's power is made perfect in our weaknesses because he is able to work when we get out of the way and when we begin to operate in his strength and his power. See, God ultimately is looking at you and wants you to be a conduit for his strength and his power in this world. He wants you to be a spokesperson for him at work and at home. He wants you to speak for him. Can you believe that? I I keep going back to this old Teresa of Alva quote where it says, Christ has no hands but in his church, and he has no feet but in his church, and he has no eyes to see but through his church. We are to be Jesus to the world. And God wants us to operate in his strength and his power. In fact, it's available to us. So whatever it is you have, sometimes we like to use this as a weakness. God, I've got little strength. I don't have much to give. Lord, I, I don't know. I don't have a whole lot of knowledge on the Bible. Lord, I don't, I I mean, take what you have. God wants to use that. Even if you might think it's weak and insignificant, and even if you think that your gifting is just not as good as the the next guy's, I don't think God cares about all that. He loves you, and he's gifted you with what he's gifted you. It's not our place to judge that. It's our place to use that. His power is made perfect in our weaknesses. And I think this church... The church in Philadelphia was a weak church. It had these um, weak moments. It had these, you know, they kept getting beat up by society. And I think that they really had this little strength. But God ended up using them for huge, huge things. So like I said, whatever you have, whether it's big or small, surrender that to the Lord. When you submit and surrender that for God's use... Then I think that's when his power is made perfect. I think that's when he really works in big ways because we get our own desire for our own agenda out of the way. And it's when God is best, you're best able to handle God's power. I don't think that we're able to handle God's power very well when we're on our own agenda. Does that make sense? I don't think we're able to handle God's power very well when we're on our own agenda. But when we're on God's agenda, when we've surrendered to Him, then I think it's something we're able to handle. Then I think it's something we're able to use. So the church took what they had, which was little, and it was used for something big. The church saw that the culture was, they lived in was crippled by fear and insecurity. They mustered up the strength that they had. They used it as an opportunity to teach that real security can be found in relationship with Jesus. The church didn't make decisions based on fear, but on faith. And I think that's important for us too, that the decisions we make are based on faith and not fear. It might be a good exercise to do for you to write down just this question. What decisions do I make based on fear? What decisions do I make based on fear? Because when you begin to, to, to nail those down, And pray about those and go, okay, God, do I make financial decisions based on fear? Do I make decisions on who I talk to based on fear? Because that's not the way God wants us to operate. Let's keep going. Verse 10, it says this. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. There's wild speculation on this verse. Like, you could open up five commentaries and five different things. You could open up ten commentaries and find ten different things for that matter. Like I said, there is wild commentary on this. But what I think when you break it down to the most essential level to the Greek of what Jesus is saying, he's essentially saying, when you keep me in your life, I'll keep you. When you stand up for me, I'll stand up for you. So walk through the door of opportunity Walk into my plan for your life, and whatever comes your way, I'll keep you. I'll keep you through all the insanity. I'll keep you through the rough times and the good and the bad. You will be mine. And then verse 11 says this. It says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of God. The city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new new name. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. (sighs) He says hear a lot. Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love those words, I'm coming soon. This is one of the main thrusts of the book of Revelation, by the way. In fact, we're going to see this start popping up more and more and more frequently. I'm coming soon. And what does that mean? Does that, I mean, so many people have looked for Jesus is coming, right? Like, in fact, I, I just went into YouTube. Don't do this because you'll start. There's a whole bunch of fear-based responses on when Jesus is coming. I went on YouTube, and I just typed in Jesus, Jesus coming back just because I, I was just utterly curious to see what people would make videos of. Did you know that there's like a huge community of people that have just nailed down that April 13th of this year, Jesus is definitely coming back? Did you know that? I just found that out. And then a couple years ago in 2011, there was this whole huge community of people that believed it was like May 11th Jesus was coming back. And then a few years before that, there was a huge, whole huge community of people. That's not what this verse is saying. What this verse is saying is that Jesus is coming every time that, you are rede- that somebody's redeemed. That Jesus comes a little bit more as the, as the church expands grows. That's what this verse is trying to convey. When, when it says, I am coming soon, when you break it down to this most base level, it's not denoting a time frame necessarily. We like to do this as humans, right? We like to put a time and a date on things and make it sure. But what it's, what it's saying is Jesus is coming in the new redeemed humanity, when, the, when all of humanity begins to say yes to Jesus, begins to follow Jesus, and their lives begin to be redeemed, Jesus is coming in that. That's what this verse is saying. And will Jesus physically and bodily return? Absolutely. The verse isn't denying any of that. But Jesus is coming. I don't know when. Revelation doesn't say when. Sorry, if any of you have been looking for the code this whole time, it doesn't say when but that Jesus is coming back and he's coming in every experience of redemption and he's coming in every experience of forgiveness and he's coming in the world through you, through me as we share Jesus to the world. But he's also physically returning at one point. So I love those words, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon. And the the one who is victorious has a place to say, Remember, this historic city, people had to go outside and sleep in tents because they didn't feel secure and safe. People were, the the Christians of the town, the doors of the synagogues were shut in their face. This city, if if you think about the church of this city, they really had no place to go. And what Jesus says to them is, The one who endures, I will open up the door of my temple, and you will come and be a pillar of my God. In other words, a pillar in the temple of my God. In other words, you will always have a place to stay in me. You will always have somewhere to flee in my my life. You will always be welcome into my kingdom. See, this incredible encouragement for this church, a church whose the doors were always slammed in their face, the church in which they really had no place to go. Jesus said, my door is open to you. You're always welcome in. So like I said, this is a church that didn't have fear, but had faith. And they overcame the fear of the world by sharing Jesus with others. And I want to ask us today, what are the opportunities that we have to walk, walk through? What are the open doors that we have? I mean, do we not have a climate of fear and insecurity, in our in just at least in America today? We absolutely have that. Right now, philosophically, everything's up for grabs, right? Everything is changing. People are searching for meaning in everything. And if you follow Jesus, then you have meaning and truth. So what doors are open? Millennials get a bad rap. Millennials are the people who are kind of like 18 to 30 right now. Um, born before the turn of the millennium and all that stuff, but a recent study of Notre Dame from Notre Dame says that 80% of millennials, who by the way are drastically missing from the church, shows that 80% of millennials believe that the Bible is the Word of God. That's amazing, but get this: they don't trust the church. They believe that the Bible is the Word of God, but they don't trust the church. Most studies show that people come to know Christ because they trust a Christian. Yesterday when I was sitting down just sharing my faith with this guy at the skate park, my goal was not necessarily to fill up a bathtub of water and baptize him right there. You know what I mean? My goal was not necessarily for him to even accept Christ right there. If he did, that would have been awesome. I wanted him to trust me first so that I could have that conversation with him down the road. Do people trust you? Who trusts you that doesn't know Jesus? That's an open door. That's an open door. Many of you have millennials in your lives. They're called your kids, right? That's an open door. You are called to be an open door. And here's just one way I want our church to, to practice this in the next month. One, to continue to pray for the harvest. To continue to ask God. I mean, look what's happened in our church just over since November till now. It's incredible what God has done. Let us not stop praying and asking God for his harvest to come. But two, you are an open door. You can invite somebody. You can invite somebody to know Jesus. You can invite somebody to church. And we've created a very fairly convenient and easy way for you to do that. Those are Easter cards. So, Nico, do we have those back there? We've. If, if can we get our ushers to to, uh, Nico's got all these cards. I, I want to pass out our Easter invitations to you. Two or three. We got we got fifteen hundred of these, and no. Go ahead, ush, ushers. Will you all go back to Nico? Ushers, there we go. Bernie, thank you. We want to pass these cards out to you right now because you could be an open door to a neighbor, to a friend, to a family, and you could simply, maybe you don't have the words to say. This is why I think inviting people to church is so key. Maybe you don't have the words to say. if, like, would you like to come know Jesus? I, I don't know how that all works. But I'll preach on that. And I've been, I, I've like, in the next few weeks, I, I mean, continually asking people, would you like to know Jesus? I'll do that. So I'd like to invite you to be an open door. And then in the coming weeks, would you share about our Easter service with others? In the coming weeks, would you simply work on a trust-based relationship with somebody who's not a Christian? In the coming weeks, would you share your faith and show off that, that you love Jesus with others? You are an open door. As we end and wrap this up today, I want to remind us of a couple things. One, this phrase, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Maybe you're receiving these cards thinking, ah, I don't know who I'm going to give this to. Just remember that, that, that God is simply saying to you, my power is made perfect through your weakness. So take it with whatever strength that you have and invite you. Last week, we looked at a church that was safe. We looked at the church of Sardis. We looked at a church that faced no outside threat, And they were able to thrive, but they forgot the chief thing that they were called to do, and that's disciple people. They were asleep, and they were called to wake up. We looked at that church. That was the church in Sardis. And today, if you went to Sardis, you could look at the sheep grazing fields of Sardis. In other words, the church didn't survive. The church didn't last. But the church of Philadelphia, if you went there today... You would see this massive center. This church lasted another 1,400 years after this moment. Think about that. Churches today have an average lifespan of 70 years. The church in Sardis was gone shortly after this letter was written. Just a couple hundred years later, gone. But this church in Philadelphia lasted 1,400 years because they overcame fear and they took every opportunity to share the gospel. Would this church last fourteen hundred years? Would we last that long? Obviously, some of us are going to die. You know, in less than fourteen hundred years, right? I mean, I'm not going to last that long. But would the work of God in Covina, last another fourteen hundred years because we create a culture of overcoming fear, because we create a culture of taking every opportunity to share the love of God with people. That's what this church did. Let's pray. Father, we come to you really with little strength. We, we, we don't know even what we have in our hands that we could offer the world sometimes. But God, I pray that you would bring these opportunities before us. Father, opportunities to share your love with humanity. God, opportunities just to simply talk about what you've done for us. God, would you bring up these opportunities? Opportunities to just share that you're alive and active in our lives. God, would you bring these opportunities forward? And Lord, would we be the type of church, the kind of community that takes these opportunities? God, that's what we, we need to be the kind of church that's bold and that doesn't let fear direct us the moves that we make. So Lord, would you use us to be a church that walks through doors that you are opening? Father, some of us might need to repent for for judging the door, for saying this is a good door or a bad door, but Lord, if you've opened it, we need to walk through that. And so Lord, would you use us? Would you use this church Lord, would you use each person here as they, as they contemplate who do we invite for Easter? Lord, would you bring that person to mind? Would you facilitate that conversation? Would you help us to reach others? Father, we love you, we honor you, and we thank you for your message to us through the Church of Philadelphia. In your name we pray.